Hello, I'm Kathy. And I'm Gary. And this is Torah Talk. Welcome to Torah Talk, the intersection of the mundane and the miraculous. Here we have bold conversations about faith, culture, and politics, and where we fit into God's plans in the 21st century. If you could partner with God, would you? By now, everyone has heard about the atrocities perpetrated by Hamas against the Jews of Israel. And while some non-Jews did get caught up in the horrors, make no mistake, the intent of Hamas was to target Jews. The floodwaters of gross anti-Semitism have been unleashed on the world again, on a scale I'd say not seen since in the world since the Holocaust. Are the tens of thousands chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, a new phenomenon that's just sprung up from nowhere? Or are these the weeds that have grown from the seeds of anti-Jewish sentiments that have been well watered for centuries, even millennia? An even more important question would be, has the church contributed to these anti-Semitic sentiments with a very popular church doctrine known as replacement theology. Does the church have any culpability for the tsunami of anti-Israel and anti-Jewish hatred that has swept over the world in the last few weeks? In other words, does the church have blood on its hands? After this, let's talk about replacement theology and let's talk Torah. For over 25 years, Ezra International has been helping the poorest of the poor Jewish people escape poverty and persecution. In fact, almost 80,000 Jewish people have now returned to Israel with our help. The average cost to rescue one Jewish person is $360. Your gift of just $30 a month over one year can help return a Jewish person to Israel and restore their hope for a better future. Please go to EzraInternational.org and give your best gift today. Okay, so I'm going to start today with saying that we're going to step on some toes this week, right, think, Gary? Yeah, I, mean, I can't, would you I, agree? We can't. We can't avoid it. There's yeah. no way. I think it's, you know, that might put it lightly. Yeah. Um, I, and I don't mean we'll be stepping on the toes of non-believers or pagans or atheists. Nope. We're going to be stepping squarely on the toes of the institutional church, squarely on the toes of those who call themselves Christians. But what I also want you to know is that we're not doing this. We're, I mean, we are doing this. We're doing it because we want to shake the church awake. That's right. The church is asleep. And we want to to waken them up. This may be the last call to waken them up. Well, not not only asleep, Kathy, but this this is this is gross error that yes. we have to point right, out. Right, right, and we have to, and and a lot in the church don't know that it is. Right, but you know. We're doing this, and I want you to tr know this, audience, in the same way a parent demonstrates tough love toward a child. We do not want self-proficient Christians to be fooled, lied to, or deceived, either on purpose or out of ignorance. Because you know, if, you're my, if you've been in this audience for any amount of time, you know what my, my favorite Bible verse is, the one that motivates me. My people are destroyed by lack of knowledge, Hosea 4, 6. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that the doctrine of replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel, feeds the anti-Semitic monster. When the world sees that the church has dismissed the Jews, how easy is it for them to do so too? Mm. You know, we see tens of thousands of people marching in the streets today, siding with Hamas in the brutal massacre of Jews in Israel. Gary, I don't think I would have ever thought we would see quite that honestly this time because of the brutality and the i mean the horrific events that happened on october 7th i honestly didn't i thought 
surely everybody has to see right and wrong here. And that hasn't that been the hasn't case. That happened. Now, I don't necessarily believe that many of those people that are out in the streets no. are regular churchgoers. I'm not saying that. Although I do know that there is a strand of radical, liberal, so-called Christian churches who are very pro-Palestinian and anti-Jew. That just exists. That does exist, Kathy. And there's also, I think what we're going to address is the ignorance, even just well-meaning church-going individuals who are just so ignorant, they just don't know the truth of what's going on in that region. You know, so I'm not suggesting that the more conservative Christians are participating in these overt anti-Semitic marches or that they're engaging in any anti-Semitic behavior like we've been seeing in the news lately. I mean, Gary, we've been reading about people painting the stars of David on Jewish homes and mm-hmm. businesses. I saw that video of the uh, those innocent Jewish college students that were locked themselves in a room and were and they were trying the violent mobs were trying to get into that into them. It's like the 1930s all over. Exactly. And I'm not saying that those people in those mobs were are are Christians, the ones that Mm. are in the pews on Sunday. Yet, this is what I am, am saying. The behaviors of these radical people it doesn't exist in a vacuum and it didn't arise in a vacuum. And while people who don't read the Bible or claim to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can and do come up with plenty of horrific anti-Jewish thoughts and behaviors all on their own. When the church sits quietly by without intervening, evil will prevail. That's right. That is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. The church, having been indoctrinated with hundreds of years of anti-Jewish lies from the church fathers, did not see it as their responsibility to defend the Jews. Their thinking boiled down to, well, they killed Christ, so they're getting what they deserved. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Gary, that same sentiment exists today within the walls of the church, and you and I have experienced that. Yeah, we we are hearing it firsthand. You know, it may show up as God has abandoned the Jews, we the church are spiritual Israel, and we alone have received the national promises made to Israel. The church always would claim those promises. Um, They don't claim the the curses, though, of course, course, you know. (laughs) So I believe that these lies passed down by the church in the form of replacement theology have allowed the enemy to rear its demonic head against the Jews in 2023. The problem of the church may not be overt anti-Semitism. The problem is ignorance and apathy. Many in the church don't even believe that God's everlasting covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, well, everlasting. And this is at the heart of the dark and deceptive concept of replacement theology. You're, you're absolutely right, Kathy. And, you know, so let's define it, because if there's anybody in our audience who, who's never heard of replacement theology, this is just is one click away. You can go to Wikipedia. That's how common it is. And I'm going to purposely read from Wikipedia because I want you to see how common this is. This is the definition you will find. It's also called supersessionism. You know, replacement theology is supersessionism or even fulfillment theology. And it's a Christian theology, a th- theological doctrine which describes the theological conviction that Christian church has superseded the nation of Israel, assuming their role as God's covenant people, thus asserting that the new covenant through Jesus Christ has superseded or replaced the Mosaic covenant exclusive to Jews. Supersessionist theology also holds that the universal Christian church has replaced ancient Israel as God's true Israel, and that Christians, including Gentiles, have replaced the biological bloodline of ancient Israelites as the people of God. All right, Kathy, I'm going to sum up that entire paragraph with two words. God lied. That's what that theology is saying. God lied. when. Oh, oh sorry, Abraham, just kidding, right. is what this theology is basically saying. That's and the only conclusion you can come to, the Gary. the only conclusion for the rational person or anybody who spent uh, five minutes studying the Scripture. But yet, 
we have theologians, people with PhDs, still propagating this message, and people sitting in the pews who believe it. That's right. What the pastors are teaching this. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we've seen this in Methodist Church, Baptist Church, and I've even experienced it amongst the the the. Uh, members of the assemblies of god which i from which i'm ordained they they look at the jewish people as just another unsaved people group at a minimum and then of course we know that it gets much worse than that exactly so all right we oh. need we need to address the big picture right I mean, within God's plan for world redemption, he carefully identified himself with three generations of a people who would become that vehicle for world redemption. God needed a man who would become a people, and he needed a land in which to carry out the plan. And it's all spelled out so clearly. Where, Gary? Where would that be? <laughs> you know, I think is it we... the New York Times? Is that what it is? <laughs> Good question, Kathy. I mean, my goodness, all we have to, uh, you know, I love that, that expression back to Genesis of Ken Ham. You know, go, all we have to do is open the book and we look in Genesis and we see that is the real foundation, the fundamentals. You know, I, I, we recently talked about this idea of fundamental truths. Well, if your fundamental truth doesn't align with Genesis and the Torah itself, then something's, something's wrong with right. your fundamental truth. Now, here we go. Genesis 17, 7 through 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So look at the look at this. Break this down. Number now, one, he's speaking to who here, Gary? God is speaking to Abram, Abram, who became Abraham, Abraham. Yes. at this time. And he's not only speaking to him, he says, I'm speaking to your descendants after you. So this is not just a, a promise to Abraham. It's a promise to every one of Abraham's descendants. And we know, all right, the word everlasting. Kathy, you've heard me do this a million times. The word everlasting in the Hebrew means everlasting. But let's, let's drill down on what, what that word actually is. It's olam. Now, some of you in our audience might recognize that word. Remember when we when we say our prayer, the prayer in Hebrew always begins with Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the Universe. Now, <laughs> universe is a more modern translation. The the in the Hebrew understanding of this word, it talks about eternity or an uninterrupted future. In other words, this covenant is eternal, and it is connected to the eternal one. He And in this covenant, he included all the land that we now know as Israel, and much more than what we know as the modern state of Israel. And, not, and third point in this covenant, he says, I will be God to you. Now, he is God no matter what, but he is God to a people through covenant. And we're talking about now an eternal, unconditional covenant. You know, so then there becomes the question, so which descendants was God talking about? Because <laughs> Abraham had multiple descendants, right? Sure, let's so clear that there, up. Let's Kathy. clear that up. We know, as we read in Genesis, that Abraham had his first son, Ishmael, not by his wife, Sarah, but by her maidservant, Hagar. And then later, significantly later, he had Isaac. So you might say, okay, so who's getting this blessing, which, which is the line of blessing? Was it Ishmael or Isaac? Luckily, God cl clarified that in Genesis 17, 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, there once again, and with his descendants after him. Oh, okay. So now... now Isaac grows up, and he has multiple children. So he has twins. The first one to come out of the womb is Esau, mm -hmm. and the second one is Jacob. Okay, so which one? Luckily, the Bible tells us again in Genesis 35. When God is speaking to Jacob, he says, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, 
I'll give it to you, and I'll give the land to your descendants after you. There he is. Three How generations. Three uh, generations of proof. Very that the, who, specific this, yes, proof. Yes. He didn't want this to, to for people not to understand this. Right. And and yet it's not that hard. You know, <laughs> this should clear up any confusion about who the land belongs to. No one in the church should be confused about it. No one in the church should be expecting Israel to give up his land to anyone else. You know, it doesn't matter, folks, if we think it's fair or not, or that it doesn't seem like the Christian thing to do to give all something to one kid and not the other. Mm. Doesn't matter. Take that up with God. The land only was given to Israel. And you know what? We should know that as Bible-believing, reading Christians. We told the story in our last podcast of Harry Truman and how God placed him at the right place and the right time to give basically his blessing to the new state Mm -hmm. of Israel in 1948. Why did Truman do that? Because he had been taught the Bible on his mother's knee since he was three. He knew exactly who that land belonged to. He did. He, you know, the story goes because Truman, everybody remembers he had very thick glasses. He had poor eyesight. So he was not an athlete, but he was a reader. And he read the Bible. The story goes that he read it through three times by the time he was a teenager. Wow. So, yeah, you know, he knew the word of God. And, and look how How can it, we not read it and see the same thing? Well, exactly. God put him in exactly the right place because he knew that man knew the truth. That's right. That's right. The church suffers. Uh, what Kathy, I, you know, I coined this phrase, or because it was a sermon title, probably I don't know, twenty years ago, and I called it covenant confusion. And I believe that it is what is the the foundational problem of the church today. It suffers from covenant confusion, and and they then therefore, uh, replacement theology is 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 what springs from it. Conf- covenant mm-hmm. confusion is upstream from replacement theology, because it, let me let me explain. If you as a as a believer, you you've uh, hopefully you're reading your your Bible. You know how the Bible has this uh, our, you know division between Matthew and and the the uh, what the world calls the Old Covenant or Old Testament, and we look at the Matthew and going forward as the New Testament. This causes part of the problem, the thinking, because much of the church believes they open that Bible to Matthew and everything to the right is New Covenant and everything to the left is Old Covenant. That is dead wrong, because everything that we find in the Tanakh, which is Every every word from from Genesis through through Matthew is mm-hmm. is the is what we call old covenant is the Tanakh, and I, I, I see I'm trying I'm trying to talk use the proper words here and not <laughs> use old covenant Old Testament New Testament that kind of a thing, but if you don't know what I'm talking about I have to use those words, but we perpetuate the problem when we use old covenant New Covenant or New Testament Old Testament, but the Hebrew scriptures contain. All four of the pertinent covenants I'm going to speak of. Now, there are other covenants. There's the Noahic covenant. There's the Salt covenant. But I'm going to talk about four most important covenants quickly. And we've done an entire program. And we've program done a whole this. podcast. We did so a whole podcast on this. You can go so, back and uh, listen yeah, to that. Yeah, I won't go take the time to describe them all, but I will list them here because we, we've already spoken of the Abrahamic covenant a moment ago, how it's eternal and how it, it, it was unconditional. Therefore, it still stands today. The next covenant was added was the covenant God made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. It was added to give a people group a universal code of conduct to guide them as the children of God. That, that universal code of conduct we call the Torah. And sadly, it's been dubbed with a negative connotation as the law. But that was a, a, a God's instruction to his people. Yeah, how instruction to is the better word it's for that. The, it's the instruction on how to behave as a child of God. Mm-hmm. So you have the Abrahamic covenant for a, for a, a man and then a, a family. And then you have, and, and all his descendants. And then you have that family becoming a nation. And they're giving, uh, given another covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Within that covenant were conditions 
And therefore, we have this idea of if you obey me, you'll be blessed and you'll stay in the land that I've bequeathed to you. If you don't obey me, I will temporarily scatter you. But because of the Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise that you will always return. So what you're saying, Gary, is that the the newer covenant did not do away with the, the older covenant exactly. that was in effect. Exactly, it was right? added on The Mosaic to, covenant didn't get rid of the no, Abrahamic covenant. it did not replace right. it. It did not uh, supersede it. It did not get rid of it. Abrahamic covenant was, was a foundational covenant. The Mosaic covenant was an instructional covenant. Mm-hmm. And then God promised to renew that covenant. We find that in Jeremiah 31. The renewing of that covenant is, is a more of a future date. It, the process has begun, and I, and I believe that's what Yeshua's time on earth was all about. Those of you who call him Jesus, I'm talking about Jesus, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah. He was, he was in the business of renewing that covenant with his people. That is also listed in the Tanakh. And the fourth and final covenant I'll talk about is the Davidic covenant. What is that all about? That's God's promise to King David that there would be a king, a king of the Jews, on the throne forever. A a real bloodline ancestor of David. A bloodline of David, yes. Why do you think when Jesus was walking through Jerusalem, you hear the crowd saying, oh, son of David, son of David, save me, or or heal me, whatever they were calling for him. They knew that he was a son of David. He was from the ancestral line of David, king of Israel. Therefore, the Davidic covenant is all about a king of the Jewish people coming back to sit on the throne. So there they are, Abraham, Mosaic, renewed and Davidic covenants, all found in the Tanakh, or again, what church sadly calls Old Testament or Old Covenant. So this this arbitrary or this false division of Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old, Old Testament, New Testament is where we have this covenant confusion come from. I, I encourage you to listen to that again. If this is news to you, I encourage you to go back to our podcast about covenant confusion, where we we detail all of these covenants. Um, you know, much provide much more detail to them. But I liked the conciseness of we're not talking about the first three quarters of the Bible compared to the last one quarter of the Bible. That's not what we're talking about as far as covenants. As Gary said, all of the covenants existed in that first, the Tanakh. Everything existed. And Gary, would it be safe to say that all of those covenants were made with Israel? Yes. 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 And But thank God, God made a provision for we the Gentiles, people of the nations, to be a part of this plan of world redemption. It was not just Israel's redemption, it was world redemption, but Israel was the vehicle to deliver this plan. And still is. And still is. Yes. And still is. You know, another church idea that's upstream of replacement theology is the belief that Jesus started a new religion. Now, we've talked about this many times. The truth is that the idea of a Messiah only existed within the context of Judaism. So without the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, there's no concept of Messiah, an anointed one. So think about this. Paul said, we proclaim Messiah or Christ crucified. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew word Messiah was translated to Greek as Christos or Christ. Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Meshach which means anointed, this word Messiah is defined only by the Hebrew prophets. That was the only way to know whether or not someone is a Messiah is you had to read the Tanakh. Nobody else outside of that would have known. Mm -hmm. The Greeks didn't have any concept or criteria for a Messiah. Neither did the Romans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. No one in those cultures would have known what a Messiah was. He was defined only within the Hebrew scriptures, nowhere else. Thus, There is no Christ without Israel. Amen. Let that sink in a little bit, folks. In Greek, Christos was formed from an existing Greek word called Cairo that means to smear, like smearing a leather strap with oil to keep it from cracking. Mashiach also comes from a Hebrew word, which means to smear, as in smearing oil. 
But in the Hebrew culture and history, the word had taken on the idea of anointing, a special calling for a special purpose, a concept uniquely Hebrew in nature, uniquely connected with the Mashiach, the Messiah. So unless you're referencing the idea of smearing oil on something, the term Christos had no meaning to Gentile Greeks. It only had meaning if it were connected to the Hebrew Mashiach. By itself, it meant nothing. This wasn't a problem for the disciples or for Paul, because even when they were speaking in Greek or Aramaic, they were thinking Hebrew. A Hebrew person would have had no problem understanding the concept of Mashiach. But a Greek person would have had to be taught what it all means. And the best way to do that was to use the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, to explain the concept and how Yeshua met the require, all the requirements for being the prophesied Messiah. All of that had to exist within the Hebrew Jewish culture. That's right. All of it. The problem is that after 2,000 years, Jesus Christ now exists on his own separated from his Jewish family and culture. No one in the church thinks about him as being Jewish. No one wonders, what does WWJD actually mean? Hmm. They've created a Jesus in their own image rather than conforming to his image. If you even suggest that perhaps Jesus would not have done things the way we in the church have been doing them for thousands of years, you're ridiculed, called a heretic. Even better, the way Jesus lived is dismissed as being unimportant compared to the way he died. All that matters is Christ crucified. Well, is it? Are you sure of that? Do scriptures actually back up that statement? Do Yeshua's own words back up that statement? I think if the clear reading even of Yeshua's words, the answer is no to that, Gary. Oh, absolutely. The way he lived mattered. And that's why he came to show us the way to live. He also came to die for our sins. One doesn't negate the other. Amen. He's capable of doing both. I'm, I'm so glad you were asking these bold questions, Kathy. I, I love that, that last set of questions. Get our people thinking. The church needs to think about these questions. You know, so often the church has this ideology where you have... Oh, it's right or it's wrong, or it's one or the other. We It, it does get translated in the idea of systematic theology, which mm-hmm. we don't have time to go into, but it's you either have right thinking or wrong thinking, or if if one thing is true, then everything else cannot be true. Mm. Well, there are folks, you're putting God in a box, okay? <laughs> yeah. So Jesus is, the way Jesus died can matter, and the way Jesus lived could matter, yeah. right? Yeah, and it matters a lot. It matters a lot. And if we want to do what would Jesus do, what we're looking at is both. We're looking at how he lived and possibly how he died, right. you know, giving I, up, you know, his life. I agree. I always say it shouldn't be what what would Jesus do, is what did he do? Exactly. If we look at his life, he was personifying the will of the Father. He was personifying the Torah. He, when, when we talk about fulfilling the Torah, he was walking it out. He was the perfect example of the Torah. He wasn't doing away with it. He was demonstrating it for us. Exactly. And, and he even told us, I'm not doing away with it folks right. okay Matthew 5:17 I haven't come right. to abolish the Torah I've come to fulfill it right you know the other problem um, that you have with replacement theology is this idea that on his cross was written king of the Jews hmm so he's not king of the Christians right <laughs> prophetically as Gary said he was defined as the son of King David that is why the book of Matthew begins with that detailed genealogy that connects Yeshua back to his forefather, King David, even further back to Abraham. Hey, Abraham. Thus, Matthew begins the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yeshua was not the son of Apollo or the son of Atticus. He was the son of the Jewish David and of Abraham. That's just the truth, folks. It's the truth. And, you know, Matthew understood, obviously, by the Spirit of God, that it was important to to start conquer, there to put yes. that in, in his in his his official record of his life. I mean, you know, Kathy, how many times have we heard that Jesus was the first Christian? 
Always. I've heard he's the first Baptist. I've oh heard he's not the first Catholic. Do you, do you know, I remember a day two back during the Oslo Accords, I remember even Arafat calling him the first Palestinian Christian. Yes. He said, come to Bethlehem. Remember when Bethlehem was given over in the Oslo Accords? He said, come to Bethlehem and worship the first Palestinian Christian, Jesus. Wow. Well, you know, but if you take away his Jewishness, then he exactly. might as well be Palestinian. He might as well be whatever. Exactly. You know? And do you think he, he didn't know that? He didn't. Did he not he realized the christian disconnect and i he used it and i think they're still using it today absolutely i mean the messiah could not have been the first christian if he were then he was by definition not the messiah right i mean this we're talking about a new religion he had to be the king of the jews the line of the tribe of judah the son of david you know, Kathy, we both, uh, and, and quite a few of us that we know, read the, the book uh, Copernicus and the Jews recently, and he made an interesting point. In common English usage, Christ points away from the Jewish people. In English today, Jesus Christ is not at all equivalent to Yeshua the Messiah, precisely because the two phrases invoke two different historical and cultural spiritual worlds. That, you know, the, that the former is entirely Christian, whereas the latter is entirely Jewish. Two different worldviews. Completely Two. different worldviews. In fact, that when, when, when thinking about that, it, rem, it reminded me of a, a quote that I've often used from historian Jules Isaac. He said, the Jewish rejection of Christ was triggered by the Christian rejection of the law. The rejection of the law was enough. To ask the Jewish people that they accept this rejection was like asking them to tear out their heart. History records no example of such collective suicide. And Christians don't realize what they're asking they of a Jewish don't. person when they say, here's my version of Jesus, the one who looks just like me, right? Okay, does everything the way I do it in the 21st century, right. you know, here in America. This is the guy that you're... Your Messiah. And they're looking at the Bible going, uh, no, I don't no, think so. No, we, we don't. We will not follow a Messiah that is not Torah observant. That's right. We will not follow a, a, a Messiah who is disconnected from our people, Israel. Exactly. He, yeah. he doesn't care, have any special place in his heart for his people, right. Israel. So how ignorant, how ignorant is it for, for a, a Christian to think that they... Uh, in the, you know, in in a recent example of somebody you spoke to, and I'm going to say it: how ignorant of a person to think that they could stand on a street corner with a cross in their hand in the middle of Israel and think they're going to make a difference. You know what they're going to do? They're going to conjure up all the memory of 2,000 years worth of death and persecution, thanks to the Christian world, thanks to replacement theology. That's right. And that's it. It's, is that how we want to evangelize? It's is disgusting. that going to work? It's disgusting. You know, I'm not saying we can't be saved in the name of Jesus or we can't use the term Jesus Christ. You know, all of us came from that place. You know, I was my my first uh, the first person to speak to me about the, the salvation was using the name Jesus me and too, Jesus Christ. Of we course. all most of us probably have come through that that door. Right. However, I'm saying that these more modern Greek and English translations disconnect Yeshua from his Jewish roots, thus making it much easier for the church to dismiss these roots and lay claim to the very Gentile-looking acting Savior. Uh, I mean, mm. blue eyes, blonde hair, you know, right. um, bacon-eating Jesus. Right. You know, that's the one that they, they were trying to teach. Frankly, I don't think that most Christians would recognize their Jewish Messiah if he were to show up in their presence. And, and what's worse is that Yeshua wouldn't recognize what's going on in many churches today, especially when they're meeting on Sunday instead of the Sabbath. So, you know, and, and then they're, then they're what they're not teaching the Torah. They're teaching against it. They're teaching against it. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, his, his father's teachings were abolished in the church. Does that, I mean, does this mean that, that there are Christians who don't really know Jesus, even, even, even though they say they do? Kathy, do you think that we have people in the pulpit, people in the pews who really don't know who Jesus is? I think it's, it's, 
it's the basis, Gary. I can't find hardly any other way of explaining Matthew 7, 21 through 23, which we've always described as the scariest verse in the Bible. Mm. And, 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 and in it, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will, the will. of my Father in heaven. That means what they're doing, right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many great miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a terrifying verse, Gary. It's not talking about atheists. It's not talking about pagans. It's talking about people who claim to know the Lord. But which Lord do they know? He he, he doesn't recognize them. That's why we describe this as the scariest verse in all of Scripture. Because the the atheist, the pagan, they don't care. They don't know to care. But those who who are professing to be Christians... And who don't know, and that work workers of lawlessness there is Torahlessness. Okay. If we're going to conflate the idea of law with Torah, then we've got to do it both ways, both side ways count. That's right. He said lawlessness, right? Torahlessness. If you are claiming to know him, use his name, call yourself a Christian, doing things in his name, and yet not understanding the will of the Father. When he says, when he says you do your your let's read that again. It says, many will say on that day, oh here, uh, the right before that. But only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, what's the will of the Father? Did he not come down to the mountain and give us his will? That's right. Did he not describe what it was meant to be a child of God through his Torah, through his instruction? So if you reject his instruction, you're not doing the will of the Father. Therefore, you are lawless. I, I would challenge someone is there a different explanation for this that we're not seeing because i don't think so it is a um i think it's a terrifying verse but it's there and jesus said it right so we have got to figure out what is this he's talking about and you know really gary it's not really that tricky because when you look at they're not doing the will of the father exactly and, and they're being Without Torah, right? Okay. It's very, it's very specific. It's actually. very clear. And somebody might try to say, "Well, well oh, those must be hypocrites." Right. Well, it's they're doing no. everything in His name, but He's got, but Jesus is describing them as not doing the will of the Father right. and being Torahlessness, right. or you know, of, of no, lawless. They're doing these things, and yes, and they think they're doing it for Him and in His name and everything. Right. So, so yeah, we, this is. Please think about this. Please think about this and, and what that actually means. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Kathy, another problem that arose in the church that led to replacement theology was this tendency to allegorize biblical prophecy. I mean, I've run into this. I mean, you know, rather than reading the Bible literally, the church started reading it symbolically. Thus, uh, it put it, it's quite easy for the church to substitute itself in the place of Israel if you're not taking the Bible literally. Right. I mean, I've literally heard, uh, you know, individuals take a prophecy that we know was 100% about the nation and the people of Israel and so spiritualize it to mean the church. Well, that happens with the dry bones prophecy That's all the time. Yes, that I'm speaking of, and, and, and it happened just not that long ago, maybe yes. a few years ago, where I was speaking to an individual, a pastor actually, um, who was doing that. And most of the church, I think, spiritualizes the dry bones. Exactly. And we know it was specifically talking about the rebirth of the nation of Israel and the people right. coming back to the land. That's right. You know, true Bible study always begins with the literal meaning. Less of what we're reading is clearly delineated as a parable or allegory. But thus, we must understand that the covenant made with Abraham was actually made with the real person, Abraham, and his actual physical descendants, not allegorical descendants. (laughs) I mean, the fact that God made a way for others to join this covenant doesn't negate the fact that it was made with Abraham. 
I mean, when we read about Jerusalem, known also as Zion, there is no reason to think that it, it is a reference to some future spiritual Jerusalem. It is about the physical city of Jerusalem that's there right now, right now. today. That's right. When the prophet Isaiah said the Torah will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he meant the actual physical city from which Yeshua will reign during his millennial kingdom. The same city that's there right now. Now that you and I have walked in, That's we right. have physically walked in the miracle and faithfulness of God when we've walked in Jerusalem and the land of Israel. That's right. You know, we've talked many times about the words of the early church fathers about the Jews. They clearly blamed all Jews for the death of Jesus. So therefore, in their eyes, God had abandoned the Jews completely and transferred all of this blessings to the church. Like I said, ironically, never get those curses transferred, <laughs> but we always get those blessings transferred. You know, so the sermons of the early church fathers were replete with horrific condemnations of the Jews, much of which we have shared in earlier podcasts. For example, we've talked about St. John Chrysostom. I always never know how to say that name. Uh, the synagogues, he said, were full of assassins of Christ. There are dens of thieves, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils. He concluded, as for me, I hate the synagogues. I hate the Jews for the same reason. Well, where is Christian love and mercy? Exactly. Right? Yeah. In in his book, Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, Dr. Michael Brown said, what happened to Christian love? How much destruction was subsequently ignited by these tragic sermons of malice? The Catholic historian Malcolm Hay is surely right when he says, for many centuries, the Jews listened to the echoes of these words of St. John Chrysostom, God hates you. And thus the popular Christian doctrine has always been that anyone, whether pagan or Christian, who has had any time, at any time persecuted, tortured, massacred Jews, has acted as an instrument of divine wrath. Mm. And you know, Gary, that sounds so harsh, but that is exactly what happened in the Inquisition. Yes. That's exactly, the Catholic Church was doing exactly that. It seems so hard, I know, folks, to hear that. But, but that is what the Jews have suffered under this idea that it's the Catholic Church is somehow being used for divine God's divine wrath mm. for them rejecting Jesus. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go even one step further in how harsh that we this message is going to be, but it's the truth. For all those who watched what Hamas did to Israel in these recent days and were horrified. And got the, got all um, you know filled with righteous indignation and 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 pointing the fingers at Islam, is the Christian history with the Jewish people any better? Ask yourself that question, and we we as as Christians believers today believe followers of this Jewish Messiah, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have to be different. We have to be different. We We haven't been different. We haven't been. Throughout history, the Jews have suffered terribly at the hands of Christians, claiming to be acting in the name of Christ. Think about it. The Inquisitions, the Crusades, the pogroms throughout all of Eastern Europe. And we can't forget the highly regarded Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation, who laid out the blueprints for the Jewish destruction later followed by Hitler. I mean, again, we've talked about this before. Europe was conditioned for 400 years leading up to the Holocaust. So Hitler didn't have a hard time convincing the people to do what they did to the Jewish people. Raoul Hilberg, a noted scholar of the Holocaust, summarized the essence of the the diabolical infection of anti-Semitism within the church. And I quote, since the fourth century after Christ, there have been three anti-Jewish policies, forced conversion, expulsion, and annihilation. The second appeared as an alternative to the first, and the third appeared as an alternative to the second. The missionaries of Christianity had said, in effect, you have no right to live among us. The Nazis last decreed, you have no right to live. 
The process began with an attempt to drive the Jews into Christianity. The development was continued in order to force the victims into exile. It was finished when the Jews were driven to their deaths. The German Nazis when then did not discard the past. They built upon it. They did not begin a development. They completed it, end quote. It's a harsh thing to hear, I guess. It's a hard thing to hear uh, as we started at the beginning about the culpability within the church. And once again, no one in the church knows this. Sadly. Sadly. We have a job to do, Kathy. But, you know, the Jewish people do. They do. You know, they do. You know, I told you we're going to be stepping on some toes today. But the plain truth is that although Christians were not the ones to brutally massacre innocent Jews in their homes on October 7th, Christian doctrines have allowed lies and misconceptions to fester and feed into a satanic narrative. There's no other way to describe it. Right. Replacement theology is a satanic narrative. Yes. It's anti-biblical, anti-God, anti-Yeshua. And this narrative over and over again throughout history has resulted in dead Jews. Please listen to our podcast called Welcome Fellow Heretics if you want more of this history of the church. You know, Gary and I aren't the first or only people to point out these hard truths. And I know many people will be offended by the truth. But that doesn't change the truth, folks. Mm -hmm. We encourage you to look at the history of the church and the Jewish people on your own. Do your own research. When I first heard about all this, I did exactly that. I went to verify it because it was hard to hear. Amen. Yes. I recommend uh, several different sources. The Anguish of the Jews by Edward Flannery, who's a, who's a Catholic. Our Hands Are Stained with Blood by Michael Brown. And I really like this one called Holy to Yahweh by Terry Goldblum Seedman. Mm. Uh, has a really great description of replacement theology and its effects. Yeah. Kathy, I mean, I, I recently posted a, a editorial by a Jewish man who said, I don't care. I don't care anymore about world opinion. I don't care anymore about what the UN thinks or what the nations think. And he was right on because they can't care about that. They have to defend their people. Right now, you and I are trying to reach out to our, our brothers and sisters who feel this way. And I don't care if we're offending somebody uh, because for the sake of those who might see the truth and, and, and be pulled out of this, this false doctrine, it's worth it. So I don't care if you're offended. I don't care if you think I'm being harsh. I don't care anymore about what you think of me. I want, I want the world to be a better place, and I want the Jewish people to be safe. You know, yes, it's not about us. Gary and I didn't come up with any of these ideas, right? right? We no. didn't come up with an eternal covenant that God made with, with Abraham. I may have done it very differently. You know? We may have. We don't have God's wisdom. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But that doesn't, that doesn't matter. So it's not my honor that I'm trying to protect here. No. It's not. And no. we're, we're not to do that. It's no. God's honor that right. we're trying to protect. Right. So they can call us all the names they That's want. That's right. Kathy. We're, and we're and we do expect that, yeah. As, yeah. as we should. That's right. But, uh, you know, replacement theology is so riddled with holes, Kathy. Most Christians never even think about it. For instance, the church can't deny the fact that God chose the Jewish people through whom the Savior of the universe would be born. I mean, we we've read the <laughs> scriptures already, right? God didn't choose to make him British or Jamaican or Polish. I mean, you know, Yeshua's family ancestry is detailed all the way back to Abraham through Isaac and then Jacob. God made a promise, a covenant with the Jewish ancestor, ancestor David, that the Messiah, the promised king, would come through the family of David. Why did he do that? We don't know, <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. Jesus' family is Jewish. He chose them. Someone you know, used to say, you know, why did he choose the Jewish people? Because he chose them. That's that's, that's God's even though, choice. Even though Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof said, "Can't you choose somebody, somebody else?" else sometimes, right? I mean, it's like it's His wisdom. He is the Potter. We are the okay. clay. So please consider the implications of this truth. 
Do we as Christians truly believe that Yeshua doesn't hold a special place in his heart for his own family? I mean, how horrifying it must be to Yeshua that Christians don't place any special value on his own family. And worse, the church policies have often perpetuated the murder of his kinsmen for thousands of years. So sad. It's so it's, sad. It's I'm like, wake up, church. Yeah. You've got to get this. You've got to Amen. get it. You know, another problem with replacement theology. Replacement theology seems to tell us that God has rejected the Jews because of their sin. Now, we who are Gentile believers are far from sinless. So would that mean that God will reject us? If God broke a covenant he made with Israel, what is stopping him from breaking the covenant that he has made with us through Yeshua? If he is not a covenant-keeping God, then we are in big trouble, Gary. We're in big trouble. That's exactly what I meant when I said, when I read the definition of replacement theology, that God's a liar. That's right. If he can break his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Jewish people, then how do we trust him? How do we know that we're safe? I mean, you know, Paul says, you know, talking about the branches that were broken off, and he said, don't be haughty. You too can be broken you off. You too can be broken off. We'll, we'll be, we'll be um, pulled out away and discarded if we are haughty. And, and I think right. that... We don't remain connected through faith. Right. And, and I think that's, that's, the, that's describing the same thing we read. Yeshua said, get away from me. I never knew you. That's right. So be careful. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Look, again, don't take our word for this. Dig into the scripture. As Kathy said, his people perish through lack of knowledge. Well, not as you say, but as you love no, to that's say. That's right, exactly. I think but I'm quoting someone else. You say you're quoting someone else there. But don't, don't take our word for it. The scripture is clear. You know, Do your own homework. It requires a lot of humility. You know, we've been through this process. A lot of people will say, accuse us of being haughty, okay, Um, about, you know, compared to the church or the church is wrong and this, that, and the other. Folks, we've been there. Mm -hmm. We've we've gone through this fire already that God has used to refine us, to to burn off the lies, the deception, because those were connected to us too. Sure. It, it's no different. It, it, I wasn't born knowing all of this. None of us were. Yeah, right? We had, to, we had to take the time to seek it out. Exactly. And God honors that. Yes, he, he does. he will show you the yes, truth. Exactly. He will definitely show you the truth. You know, we've talked today about the problems that replacement theology has caused for the Jews, and that's putting it very lightly. Replacement theology is not, I repeat, not a minor theological point of discussion. It's not equal to the disagreements over pre, mid, or post-tribulation rapture, or infant versus adult baptism, or even election versus free will. Replacement theology is official church doctrine that has caused death and destruction for the Jewish people since the institutional church began. It is not, I repeat, not a theology that a true believer in God can coexist with. This is our moment to choose between hot or cold. Lukewarm fence-sitters will be spit out of Jesus' mouth, or as some versions say, vomited out, Mm. just like he warned the Church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. Now, in our next podcast, we are going to do a second part of this podcast, and we will cover what the Bible says about this topic of replacement theology and address some of the Bible verses that supporters of replacement theology try to use to support this deceptive doctrine. Your job is to arm yourself with truth and choose the path of life for you, your family, and for Israel. Amen. Shalom, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time on Torah Talk.